Hey podcast listeners, this is the Ratio Christi Colorado State Podcast. Ratio Christi is a ministry dedicated to defending the truths of Christianity through history, science, and philosophy. We meet every Tuesday at CSU from 7 to 9 p.m. discussing one specific topic with that goal in mind. This podcast is basically turning the talks from those meetings into a podcast. We hope the information can be helpful to you, whether you are able to join us physically week to week or not. What should I do? What is the good, the end, the goal of my existence? 
As soon as I ask the question, I receive an answer I know is true, even though it sounds crazy. Because it comes out of the sun and simultaneously out of a large yellow disc in my chest. The answer is, build the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal has always been to me the most beautiful, most perfect building. And here it seems to symbolize the ideal society, the society we all want. I start to argue with the voice. How about a sandcastle? I can't build the Taj Mahal. I don't, know even, I don't even know the principles of architecture. And I have nothing but sand to build with. But the voice says to me, you can't argue with me. You are me, or rather, I am you. Where do you think I'm coming from anyway? I look, and the voice is coming from the yellow disc in my chest. My own heart demands the Taj Mahal. It is I, not another, who demand perfection. Then I realize the point. Even though I have adequate answers to the first two great questions, and so does everybody else, I am not wise because I do not have an answer to the third, far more difficult question. How? How does the naked ape build the Taj Mahal from sand? Though I know what I am and what I must do, I have no hope of doing it. It is the third question, the question of hope, that stumps me. So, this talk is about that third question um, for wisdom. So, the three questions Peter Griff comes up with, he, and as he talked about in the story, and the questions are, what can I know? What should I be doing? And then what may I hope? So these are, you would say, the three great questions that every human being asks of themselves in their life. Um, a lot of people can get answers to the first two. Um, but that third one is where a lot of people get stumped. Like, what really is our hope? Do we have any hope of actually accomplishing the first two great questions that we, that we ask? So... He also, you would, you can liken these to the, uh, what are called the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. So faith fulfills the mind's deepest quest for truth. Love fulfills the moral will's deepest quest for goodness, which responds to the first two questions. And so, the, and in the same way, the hope of heaven fulfills the heart's deepest quest for joy. And so hope and joy are the interrelated things here. So just to get this quickly out of the way, um, people ask, can we actually know anything about heaven? Um, this verse pops up a whole lot. People quote this a lot. It's the, um, from Paul, I believe Paul in 1 Corinthians. Um, no eye has seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So the thinking goes, well, if it's entered into the heart of man, i.e. we're thinking about it, then it's obviously not what's in heaven. Because Paul says... We haven't thought about it. So um, this seems like a pretty great objection up front, but the Bible also says that God's thoughts aren't our thoughts, but we still write a whole lot about God. So sure, we might be writing analogously. Sure, we might not grasp the full essence of it, but it's not like we can't say anything about heaven. So keep that in mind. This is somewhat guesswork in a way. You take it as far as you can. But this is more meant that we should be careful that we won't fully get it on this side of eternity. So, just wanted to get that out of the way. If you ever think of that verse when you're thinking about heaven, um, you can still say things about it, even if you won't get the whole thing. All right, so this is a bit of an appetite letter, hopefully. It'll actually take quite a bit. Um, he starts with, uh, he starts with 14 questions about heaven, and they kind of random, and we're just going to go through, so 
First one. Will we know everything in heaven? The short answer to that is no. Um, we will remain finite beings. The problem is when people confuse um, infinity or eternity with infinity, they are not the same thing. Um, we remain finite even if we last forever, um, starting in heaven. And as the kind of creatures we are, we are human. We thrive on mystery, on seeking, on learning, on growing. If we knew everything, that would be horrifying. Um, and the other big thing is uh, the burden of omniscience requires the power of omnipotence. If you don't, if you know everything but can't do anything about it, that would just that would be hell itself. But God can do all things, and so He can bear the burden of knowing all things. So God will remain the only one who knows everything. But will we know a whole lot more? Sure. But we will not suddenly become omniscient. Another one that people ask, will we all be equal in heaven? Once again, the short answer is, of course not, because that would be ridiculous. Um, we, li <laughs> we live in a uh, rather egalitarian society. We love people being equal. Um, However, this tends to spill over into the sin of pride in the opposite ways the ancients did. Instead of the ancients who wanted to be better, they were proud to be better than everybody else. Now, we are proud to have nobody else better than us. So it's a different twist, and as Peter Grave says, we don't even get the gloating self-satisfaction of being better than everybody else, which is really tragic. So, um, <coughs> really, there isn't, equality is not the name of the game in heaven. Um, we are all equal in value, of course, that, that is as valuable as human beings in, in all different ways. And we all, as they quote here, each of the redeemed um, shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. So each of us has a very, will have a unique understanding of each other and of God that only that person will know and be able to communicate to the rest of the saints. So in that sense, we're all equal. We're all equal in that we all have a unique place in the society. However, we will say that uh, heaven is hierarchical. hierarchical. There are heroes. There are people you can look up to. Um, otherwise, that would be really, really tragic. Um, didn't think you had anybody that you could want to mold yourself after or learn from or anything of the sort. And as for the question of why there isn't jealousy in the hierarchical, aristocratic, non-egalitarian <laughs> heaven of authority and obedience, um, as Paul says, because we're all cells in the same body, we're all parts of the same body. As he says, the kidney doesn't get upset with the eyes because it's not an eye, right? Jealousy is part of hell. Jealousy has no place in heaven. In heaven, we will recognize our place in the body and rejoice in it, not be jealous of other people for their place in the body. So that will only make it more interesting and dynamic, as Paul says, if everything was an eye where the sense of hearing be, it'd be really boring without being able to hear music. All right, another question. Do the blessed in heaven see us now? The short answer that we would give is, why not? Um, Paul talks about a great cloud of witnesses in the 
tense of aliveness. They are not dead in that sense, as God also says. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a refutation that, and in the sense that they are alive, they are currently existing. So, so we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Um, does this make any difference? Well, it might if you think of however many of the blessed watching over your life with love and compassion. You might have some uh, extra strength in temptation. You might um, think on that and be comforted. So there are some things, but generally we would say the blessed probably can see us in heaven. We would probably say the blessed are still at this point in time and go along history with us. All right, an interesting one. Do ghosts come from heaven? So uh, Peter Kick would say, if you probably look at the evidence, um, there's enough stories across cultures and in various different ways of ghosts or something like ghosts that they probably exist in some form. I mean, even the Bible has, um, we talked about this before, uh, has uh, Saul calling up Samuel's ghost, right? So completely forbidden, but he did it anyway. Went and found the necromancer who should have been banished from Israel, and they called up Samuel's ghost. And Samuel apparently appeared and then said, what the heck are you doing? Um, so uh, Peter wants to warn, and I will pass this warning on, don't call up ghosts. Just, good, just so you know. Um, God has pretty much ordained that there's only certain safe ways into the supernatural, safe certain roads and doors, and those are pretty much revelation, prayer, his own miracles, the sacraments, and Christ. Anything else is pretty much off the table, um, mostly for self-protection. Um, evil spirits are deceitful. They masquerade <coughs> things, and so navigating um, those powers, he said, is like an infant attempting to navigate fire or an ant attempting to navigate a juggernaut. Um, they're not, you're not on the same class of thing as the powers you would be dealing with. So he wants to pass that along. Now for- Did you say Peter said not to do that? Yes, Peter Kraft, that's how he started. Oh, okay. the Peter Kraft Peter okay. Kraft started <coughs> answer to this question with don't call up ghosts. So <laughs> as a warning, don't do it. Um, so, but as far as the actual answer to the question, do ghosts come from heaven? He, uh, we would talk about uh, potentially three different kinds of ghosts that seem to appear in stories and people's experiences. The first would be like the sad, wispy kind. You might be able to think Casper or something like this. Um, generally, they see, these kind of ghosts seem to be potentially working off some unfinished earthly business. Um, maybe they just made it into purgatory. We'll talk about purgatory in a bit. Um, and they are like, they're, they're the kind that at the very end of their life, they have quite a bit to work out still because they led a really rough life for the rest of it. So there's various things. Um, so the sad, wispy kind, not malicious of any sort. It's more like there's lingering kind of things on earth that they're still working through. So then number two, there's the malicious and deceptive spirits. These tend to show up at conjurings, stuff like that. Um, they tend to try and show up as good. Um, this is why you don't conjure things. <laughs> and then, uh, finally, you have what we, he would call the bright, happy spirits. Um, we have uh, some 
uh, stories of this, C.S. Lewis talks about his wife appearing to him after she died, stuff like that. Um, and these bright, happy spirits, uh, generally they appear, un well, a qualification, they appear unbidden. You do not ask for them, you do not try to conjure them. They appear unbidden by God's will. And generally it's with a message for the sake of the living. This is what separates them in purpose from the malicious spirits who appear similar. Malicious spirits will always be for their own purpose. We'll somehow try to work that in. Um, these bright, happy spirits will generally be for the sake of the living because they are blessed. They do not need the blessings. So they appear for the sake of the living. Yes. Uh, so in the case of the malicious spirits, I am assuming those do not come from heaven. Would they come from hell then? That would, even that, as Peter here would say, even that possibility should terrify you of ever attempting to conjure one. So yes, that is the, the thing. If, it was, if it's even possible they're coming from hell, you should really be terrified of even attempting it. Um, and generally this message for the living of the bright, happy spirits is to say, uh, is to provide peace, to say all is well with me, right, kind of a thing. It's to give comfort back to the living. So potentially, because it can't come from heaven, but unbidden, it's not something you seek out. So does anything happen to these people, like the mediums and these poltergeist hunter people that are out there trying to talk to these ghosts? Um, that's, I mean, a great question for, there's a lot of things that could happen. I mean, you could have demon possession happen. Um, other problems in your life could also happen. Um, various sins could become stronger. Various temptations could become more powerful. Um, you just your life starts going down the toilet more and more, right? Like, or at the very least, you get further from God, right? So, um, generally, these spirits are deceptive in some way. They are not working for your happiness or for your good. It generally uh, for destruction in the end, right? Um, and they will make you potentially in the short term happy if that keeps you on the long term the road to hell. Alright. Well, we have emotions in heaven. And yes, but in a slightly different sense. Um, here, we're moved by our emotions. Our emotions move us. We are passive to our emotions. Um, generally, you can feel that in your body. Sometimes you can force it back the other way, but generally you feel your emotions come upon you, right? Your body and etc. and mind are moved by your emotions. So, in, in heaven, we are not nearly as passive as we are here. The body no longer rebels against the soul. The soul has and body are in full and complete harmony. So your your will and your body, uh, your will works through your body perfectly. So you are not, you will have emotions, but they will not be because of heredity or environment or because you're feeling hungry or tired or upset or whatever. They will come because of the knowledge and experiences you are having, not passively because of how your body currently happens, the state your body currently happens to be in, or the place you currently happen to be at, or things like that. 
So it'll be a bit different experience of emotion. But God has emotion too. We would say we would not say God has passive emotion. God is not moved by his emotions. He actively moves his emotion with his emotion. Um, God doesn't like. We don't make God angry and like God like gets made angry because of us. Um, we don't cause God to love us. God actively loves us. He, we do not cause him in any way to feel something. He is active in his loving. He is active in his anger. He is active in his joy. Right? He is the source of those. Um, so he is not moved by them from without. So we will be more in a way like God that way. Alright. This is a tricky one. Will we feel sorrow in heaven for those in hell? Um, there's the dilemma comes from two different sources. Um, the first one is in Revelation, where it talks about God will wipe away every tear from the eye, and there will be no more sorrow, crying, or pain. Right? It makes it sound like, no, we won't be feeling any sorrow for people. The other is, um, especially Peter Craig does even say as a Catholic, the appearances of the blessed two people that seem to happen, a lot of them, people seem to... Uh, be sorrowful over the sin of the world and over the people who are lost. So there seems to be maybe a difference in experience. So Peter Kick would argue maybe this is a difference of active and say passive love, and he explained it kind of this way. When a parent loves a child and the child hurts themselves, right, there are generally two components to our love currently. One is you say um, like, why did you, why did you do this? Because you are caring for the child's well-being. You're like, how could you do this to yourself? The other half of it says, essentially, how could you do to this to me? Because I love you. Seeing you hurt, hurts. I hurt inside as well. So that's the passive aspect. You are, you somehow get sorrow and pain because of your love for that person, right? But you are moved by the actions of that person. But the active component of your love is you are actively concerned for that person's well-being. Like, how could you do this to yourself? You're just fully concerned with the other person. God only has that active part of it. He is only fully concerned. He never says, how could you do this to me? Peter Craig gave the idea, we can never blackmail God. We can't, like, hold our breath and go, I'm going to kill myself if you don't give me what I want. Right? Or if you like make my life better or something like that. God cannot be blackmailed in that way. God is 100% and fully actively concerned for your well-being, but his love does not cause like reciprocal pain in himself. He is just fully concerned for you in that way. So in a similar thing, he would say maybe in heaven we only feel the active sorrow. So like we don't feel this um, passive pain, like how could you do this because I hurt because of my love for you it's, we feel a deep sorrow purely because we are sorrowful about the other person's choice and what it has done to them and there is no self bit of what that choice has done to us and he would say this might be a, a, a reason to say because in, even here on earth 
um, sorrow itself, something poignantly very sorrowful, hurts in a way, and it has its own it has its own beauty. There is a beauty to a very tragic tale, or a deep deep sorrow that happens, and so you would say. With, some, with that, like when something becomes that sorrowful, it hurts, and you have the beauty of that, would that be removed in heaven, or would it be perfected in heaven? So that's something to potentially think about, is heaven perfects things on earth. It doesn't remove any of the good things on earth. It just perfects them. And there is something to the beauty, which is a good thing, of a truly sorrowful moment. And he said maybe this beauty of sorrow also points in a way, to the self-dying life of God. God is eternally self-giving, self-dying, to giving back to himself. It's the mystery of God in that he get, and He tells us this, he who loses his life will find it. It's this self-givingness of God within himself in the Trinity. The Father gives himself to the Son, and the Son back to the Father in the bond of the Holy Spirit. Right? There's a self-giving and self-dying of God who is only the most truly alive being that there is. So, there's things to think about. That one's really tough, though. Um, not quite sure the answer. All right, we've talked about this a little bit before. We'll be, be free from free to sin in heaven. Um, sure to enter free grace would be no. And then the question becomes, Okay, what do we mean by free will then? Okay, what is or what are we talking about? Do we still have free will? All right. Um, and Peter Kiff would say we have freedom of will, but we the additional thing that happens that is added to us from this life is we also have freedom from sin. So that's the additional part that is added to our freedom of will. So he would say free will is the ability to be determined by final causes, not by efficient causes. So you can be determined by purposes, not by, um, like, matter. So, you would say that's the point of free will, and or what free will is, is the ability to be determined by final causes. And his quote is, since our highest freedom means the freedom to be ourselves, we are most free when we are most obedient to God's will which expresses his idea of us. So God has an idea of who he wanted to become when he created each and every one of us, and he has an idea that he's working toward perfecting us toward this whole time. And so if, the, if free will is the freedom toward final causes, our final cause is to be conformed to this idea of us that God has because that is most truly us. So he would say, freedom from sin is actually the freedom to be entirely authentic. You will not have sin get in the way, because he would say, sin and the evil that comes from it is just non-being. You're essentially just becoming less real, less yourself, less who you were meant to be, less who God wants you to become, less toward your idea, God's idea of who you are or who you should be. So he would say, no, we do not have the freedom to sin because the freedom to sin to him would essentially make no sense because sin is the ability to 
is essentially the inability to be yourself because it's the inability to conform yourself to God's will and God's idea of you is most truly yourself. So he would actually say it's a kind of a false dilemma and when you get rid of sin, you're actually more free, not less. Okay. Maybe a little bit different definition of freedom than sometimes we talk about. All right. Another interesting one. We can have a big Q&A session at the end once we get through all this. All right. What will we possess in heaven? Um, Peter Griffin would say everything and nothing. Silence. Victory, maybe? So he would say for the... So, in the end, your ultimate possession is yourself. Your own body, your own mind, your own person is your ultimate possession. And in heaven, all of the saints freely and joyfully give away their entire selves to each other. There is, because there is no sin, there is full and happy communion of the entirety of our beings to each other. So he would say, if even your most if even your ultimate possession, your highest possession, is freely given away, what else would you possibly possess? Because you would have already have given it away first. So, he would say, communism is essentially heaven. The problem with communism now is it's too soon. It's the wrong time. It didn't have the patience to have the nature that is necessary to make it work. So, and then he would say, the, another thing is, um, a lot of people find this, um, if they try to possess things like this, like, now if we move beyond things, say so you want to possess moral qualities, like, you would argue, we cannot possess goodness, truth, beauty, love, light, life, or God. But heaven is these things. Whenever, even now, we think of truth or goodness as something we have, we become self-righteous, narrow, and defensive. To have truth is to be dogmatic. To have goodness is to be proud. To have beauty is to be vain. To have joy is to be miserable with the fear of losing it. He would say, all of these things you possess in a like alongside it. It's just you catch it and then immediately pass it on. There's no, if you try to grasp a joy, then you very, very quickly find you don't become joyful anymore. Joy is a byproduct of a giving of self. Same with goodness and other things. If you try to hold on to this, then you very quickly find that you lose it. Um, he doesn't have, like, let's say, a heavy philosophical treatise on this. It's more like C.S. Lewis where it's just the lived experience of people. Where you find if you chase joy, it doesn't work too well. You don't find joy. If you try to grasp joy, you don't get it. If you try to grasp truth instead of seek it and continually go with it, if you have it, then you would say you become dogmatic. Because I have the truth instead of I'm finding the truth. So, overall he would say as far as physical possessions go, you already give away your most valuable physical possession, yourself. So what other physical possessions would you hoard? You wouldn't. As far as spiritual possessions go, 
He would say you can't possess them because once you try, you lose them. So as for what we possess in heaven, we will, in a sense, have goodness, joy, love, light, etc. But it will be in a uh, continually self-giving manner. Like we will receive it and immediately return it off to other people. So it will be how we're supposed to live here, where we receive it from God and then we pass it along. Or we receive it from other people and we once again pass it along. Right? There's a, we receive love in order to love others, as scripture says. So he would say, we don't really possess anything in that full sense, or how we potentially think about it here. Another interesting one. When we wear clothes in heaven. So, um... If you talk to a bunch of people who seem to like the near, people with near-death experiences or mystics, etc., most of them will tell you it's really hard to tell if the dead are wearing clothes. It's really hard to classify the dead as either uh, clothed or naked. They say if they're clothed, it appear it seems more the clothes appear to be more as a part of your body. Um, it reveals rather than conceals you, and it is and it seems natural and necessary to your person, which is fairly fascinating. If naked, it's without shame and it doesn't arouse erotic desires or anything of the sort. So they would say it's kind of hard to tell. Um, scripture talks about people about the saints being clothed in white. Um, Peter Griffin says that you could be an image of maybe the saints are clothed in light, and light reveals, does not conceal things. Just thank you. And for all you know, and for, he's like, for all you know, you could, for you, you could, and he would say, so here, in heaven, all is revealed, so truth will be in the appearance of things. So maybe clothes will express the body. So you could free, like how you are choosing to express yourself will be just how it seems to happen. It's just part of who you are, the revealing of yourself. For, as a complete speculation, which is, I thought, a fairly fascinating one, he said maybe they might express our earthly story and our earthly successes. So say, like Socrates would have his philosopher's hat. Heroes might have whatever garments goes with the story of their heroism. Jesus would have the crown of thorns. Interesting things to think about um, symbolism and how it works out. That might go. Jesus has the crown of thorns in heaven. Does it hurt? You would say no. He also has the wounds, and those apparently don't hurt either. So. All right. Are there animals Jeez. in heaven? And the answer is why not? Like it'd be kind of prejudiced to only have plants, and people. So may as well have animals too. Um. C.S. Lewis thinks, and so he just throws out, like, maybe people ask, will my pets be in heaven? And he said, C.S. Lewis thinks, maybe pets will be risen based on their masters being risen. Like, their life is just kind of tied up in the life of their masters. And as their masters are raised, maybe the pets are raised. Does this run into the same problem with the, the woman and the multiple husbands? What if a dog has multiple masters in their lifetime? Well, you can only be raised in one way, 
Like, what if one master life. What if one master is raised and you, the other is not? Would it be a blessing to the master that was raised? Then God might do it. Right? Um, other animals, uh, generally, the funny thing is, is people think like all those wild animals, like, yeah, they might be created again, but like resurrected ones, probably not happening. <laughs> because there's nothing to tie them to the resurrection. Like, they might be recreated. Like, there will probably be wild animals in heaven because. There is something, as Peter Craig puts it in an image, there's something to the seagull that just, part of its glory is that it just doesn't care about humans. It is majestic to watch the seagulls and know that it, it is going about its business and it has no heed or anything of you. It is purely wild and there's something majestic in that. So, hunters. animals in heaven. And yes, sure. So. Pets, maybe. <laughs> Might happen. Do we have better things to do than looking after pets? Sure. But why not? It's a blessing. Alright, is there music in heaven? This one's probably everyone's like, of course, we sing. Right? <laughs> so, there's angels too. Yeah, they're already singing. So, yes. Um, obviously, if people have heard, I mean, all of us live in an age where we listen to all kinds of music all the time in different ways. And uh, various of us have probably got into if we've ever been in a situation with a piece of music that really moves us in a certain way, we would say there is something of heaven in, in a great piece of music at the right time. And so, and if you take someone like Tolkien, I mean, yes, fiction, potentially, like, maybe the world was made in music, right? Maybe it's God spoke it, but... Maybe God has a particularly musical voice, I don't know. Um, is music the original language? That would be a very interesting one. Right, so is there music in heaven? Sure, yes. And there's various other things music could be too, beyond what we think it is here. All right, the question, how big is heaven? Um, we'll get into this a little bit more when I talk about potentially the properties of the body. Um, the general description was big enough to house everyone and small enough that no one gets lonely. So, um, you would say a lot of things, their size is determined by how important they are versus just how they are now. So, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure you really can get a very big answer, a very good answer to it. Um, I'm not sure it really matters that much. For all I know, it could be the, our current cosmos which is plenty big for exploration and other things. Um, all right, here's an interesting one. Is heaven serious or funny? Is there levity in heaven? And if you look at the lives of the saints, you will find that humor is high seriousness in heaven. It's a very serious business, humor. Um, Peter Crave would quote, even on earth, saints play with their lives in the most outrageous way. St. Thomas More ended his life with a bad joke, telling the axeman, please do not chop my beard in two. It has not committed treason. Okay, appreciate that. <laughs> he had a long gray beard. He wanted him to throw it over the, the block in front of him instead of getting cut with his head. So 
backstory. <laughs> and then Peter Fish would say he would argue with anyone who dares deny him to look an ostrich full in the face and say God is completely serious. <laughs> Just like you cannot do it. He's like God created the ostrich. He obviously has a sense of humor. <laughs> so, but is it serious? Like, is God very serious? Um, sure. But a lot of the people who have come back have said God has, when they talk about and look over their sins, has laughed about it. Because it has been forgiven and paid for. So, is it very serious? Sure. Is there serious parts that have to come to it? Yes. But is there joy and laughter? Of course. All right, here's a big one. Um, this starts getting into time, and I don't really want to necessarily talk too much about how time works in heaven because that's a very, I could give an entire another talk on that, so we'll, we'll go as far as we can. Why won't we be bored in heaven? Okay, three quick answers. One, God is infinite. You can't get to the end of God. And God is the source of all goodness. God is goodness itself. So anything you find good and enjoyable here, it's a derivative. It's sourced from God himself. You cannot literally want a good more good than God because God is the good in anything that you find good to begin with. And he's infinite. So you literally can never get through with the source of all goodness, which is anything you would want to do anyway. Point one. Point two, God is eternal. So this is where you get into the whole time aspect. I'm just going to give a quick thing. Uh, generally, people tend to think uh, heaven's like Rivendell. I'll give the quick quote, which is, I think Frodo mentioned it, or maybe Sam, where it was, time does not seem to pass here. It just is. People would say a precondition for boredom is time passing. If time just is, and you just move from one activity that you're doing to the next, then there's no way to get bored, because time literally does not pass you by. So that's one other way. And the other reason is God is love, and people who have ever loved someone else know that when you're in love or doing something with someone you love, that is the one time you'd never get bored. Okay. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more substantial now. Um, this will be a little bit bigger. Maybe. Um, can't go too deep into this. What will our bodies be like in heaven? Alright. So, this will be a few points for here. First is identity in the body. So, if we take Jesus' resurrection appearances to be um maybe a uh, hint of what it's like. There's obviously something different about him that they didn't recognize him at first. Some people might say, okay, well, he's just veiling himself from them, or maybe there was something just different about his resurrection body that made recognition weird. However, everyone then recognized him when he did an act that was in his character. Like when he broke the bread, or appeared right, Based on how he acted, they recognized him. So, potentially, how we will identify each other in the bodies in the new life will be less body to body and more how you your acts in character in the body. 
i.e., how your because your your body will be perfectly subject to your soul, to what you want to do and how you express yourself. So we might actually identify each other by our expressions, how we express ourselves in the body, maybe instead of just directly by our bodies themselves. In this kind of sense, um, Peter Kaif would give the term, our bodies are like all face. Right now, he would say, our faces are the closest thing, or potentially the last thing, where we have almost full control of it with our souls. Our souls beam through our faces. It's the thinnest veil where you can tell the interior of the person is through their face. Um, the facial expressions you can make, the, full, the control you have over it, it's unlike pretty much almost anywhere else in your body. In the and how it reveals you as a person and what control you have of how it reveals you. So he would say, in heaven, it'd be like your body is potentially all face. You can reveal yourself much like you do with your face currently, but throughout your whole body, which would be very fascinating way to think about it. Um, he's like, maybe that's why all the creatures in the apocalyptic literature are like all eyes and stuff like that, because it's them showing their identity through their whole body instead. All right, our body will be um, free. Obviously, we'll have full control over it, as I've been saying. Um, one interesting thing was, I forget what person he quoted, but he said um, this person his, saw a, had an appearance of his wife to him, just like similarly to C.S. Lewis. And she had, she had developed these really dark bags under her eyes before she died. And she had them still. And he was very surprised at that. And when he asked about it, she just smiled and said, I can't tell you why I still have them. I can't tell you much at all yet. Potentially, in the same way that Christ still bears his wounds, some wounds in the body can express the beauty of the character that they help develop. Other wounds, many wounds, are healed. Many people talk about, and they had their near-death experience, all of their wounds were healed, their broken limbs were fixed, their sight was restored, their hearing was unstopped, etc. right? But there are potentially some wounds that will carry over because they express the beauty of the character that you developed through them. Might be something interesting. As far as, what about age? What age are we in heaven? Aquinas thought we were all 33 because that's when Jesus died and he was the most perfect person. <laughs> However, most people say, once again, people who have gone and come back say, really hard to tell age. Can't really do it. Um, age essentially is nothing in particular. You're kind of timeless in that way. Um, in uh, Lord of the Rings, everyone reads who's read that, um, and especially the end with Aragorn when he dies, and it says, in him it seems to be it seemed to be revealed like the wisdom of his age, the splendor of his youth, and the and the, the strength of his middle years, right? Like they had all of his time seemed to flower <coughs> in him at once when he died, when he passed. People say that's about how the blessed in heaven seem. They seem like they have all of their time and all of the characteristics that come with that at the same time, at once. Very 
All right. That's the kind of thing. As far as our bodies go, we will have a oneness with nature that we kind of only wish we could have here. Um, it's the reason we come up with sprites and elves and all of these beings that seem to commune with nature in a way that we desperately wish we could sometimes. Um, one big thing is we won't be subject to nature anymore. That'll be a big one because spirit will rule matter, not the other way around. So. Um, most people would say you don't need to breathe or eat. You do if you want to, but you do not have to, because nature does not rule you anymore. So, do we feast and eat in heaven? Definitely. The Bible says we have lots of celebratory feasts. They happen a lot, it seems. <laughs> I was wondering, if spirit rules matter, is it possible then for things like telekinesis to be possible? Well, I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so no breathing or eating required. So you want to dive to the bottom of the Pacific? Maybe go for it. Don't know. <laughs> All right. Once again, <laughs> Peter Gray calls this presence to the world. It will be present to the world in some very in some, some, some substantial way we were not, we are not here. Um, there will be some veil. Yes? Actually, like, okay, way, way back to another question. Because this is the third time I've forgotten it. I just remembered it. Okay. Um, if there are heroes in heaven or people you can look up to or aspire to be, doesn't that mean that you're not really fully yourself? Mm -hmm. Because it, it would be like changing or wanting to... So this assumes a thing of you can't grow in heaven. Yeah. Do you ever reach perfection? In the full, full sense, do you ever... Well, you don't ever become God, so... Well, no. sure. So you never reach the end of growth, right? You will never reach the end of your journey toward God's idea of you. Okay. So you can always learn more things from more people. Just as you can always learn more things from God because those people will learn other things from God and you can learn from them. So. so, this presence to the world, people talk of it, at least for the dead, right? They feel they, suddenly there was this veil lifted away and they felt like they were present to the world in a way they were not. They were more solidly available. And really how that kind of worked itself out was there was this sense of they could be anywhere in the world they wanted just because they wanted to be present there. I.e., you could just teleport anywhere if you want to throw it that way. So that'd be pretty cool if you're like, hey, I want to be with this person, and then you could just be there. Fascinating. Distance would be not a reason for sorrow or anything like that because it wouldn't matter. So that would be very could you only be in one place at a time? Yes. You are not present and you cannot split yourself you are still a singular body could I go here and then here and back and forth really quickly why not <laughs> <laughs> so a loophole. the last thing would be Teleport. he would say we would have union with no, nature um, how he describes it is we will finally <laughs> in some way get in to nature um, in the way we kind of describe elves and other nature spirits who for some who in some fantasy way can take in nature's 
take nature into themselves. They commune with nature in some very deep manner. And he would say, a foretaste of this is our present body. Our body is at once a thing out there and a thing in here. It is an object of consciousness, and it is also conscious of objects at the same time. So you, are, you can look at your body and yourself from without, but you are also aware of your body from within. He would say, potentially in that same kind of way, we would be able to commune with nature in that kind of sense. We would get a sense of what it's like to be in nature. We could bring nature into us, but still be separate from it in the same way we can look at our body objectively from the outside, but we are also in our body ourselves. So he would say this would lead to potential power over nature, i.e. magic and miracles. Nature, but he would say the reason we don't have that now is because we would do horrible, horrible, more horrible things than we already do to nature if we could do that with our current fallen selves. We only get provident, we only get, um, rather, nature only obeys us when we obey God. That's kind of how it's getting set up. We got kicked out of the garden for a reason. So, you would say, why not? I have phenomenal powers over nature in heaven. All right, here's a great question. Will we have sex in heaven? There's multiple ways you can answer this. Um, the, it depends on what you mean by sex, right? Will we have sex in heaven? If you use have sex in the sense of will we be gendered, as the modern parlance would go. Yes. Yes, we will. Um, we do not all become neuter somehow, whatever that would mean, in heaven. We do not become like that. Um, we maintain our masculinity and femininity. We maintain our maleness and femaleness in heaven. Um, there is that complementarity between the two is a good design of God that happened before the fall. and. The principle is God is heaven does not destroy good things, it perfects them. So that this was a sex in the sense of genderedness is a good thing that God perfects in heaven. Um, now, as far as will we have physical intercourse? A lot of saints and a lot of people will say no. Because what's the point, right? So there's um, Peter Kip goes through, okay, there's three different reasons you might want to have intercourse. The an animal reasons, subhuman reasons, your drive for breeding or your drive for physical pleasure. Well, we don't, we don't have children anymore in heaven. That's, that's done with. And um, drive for physical pleasure. We are no longer, as I talked about before, we are no longer passive to our emotions. We are not driven by our bodies to do anything anymore. We drive our bodies. So we will not be driven by our animal desires in that way. So neither of those two can be a reason. You could have superhuman reasons or supernatural reasons, right? Well, it could be idolatry. You could be wanting to do it because of an idolatrous desire. Well, in heaven, those will exist. So you won't want to do it for that. And or there is some sense of, if anyone's read um, Dante with Beatrice, um, Paradiso, uh, you'll get the sense of the beloved is in some way communicating God's love as a mirror to 
Dante to the beloved. Um, but that didn't inspire the want to have intercourse, that just inspired more um, uh, admiration or um, love in the sense for God, right? So there wasn't a desire for intercourse from that anyway. So you would say supernatural reasons aren't a thing either. You mentioned an idolatrous desire. What would that entail? Um, some people have sex because they think it will be their greatest good. Okay. They view it as their greatest good. And you will definitely know sex for what it is in heaven. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, then we have human reasons. Once again, uh, and I forget what the full two are, but one of them is because you want to express love to your partner. Grave would argue there's a thousand better ways to do that than the awkward jigsaw puzzle that is sexual intercourse in heaven. <coughs> but maybe. But that would be about the only reason <coughs> you would want to. And even then, you could probably think of a, a whole lot of other things you would be doing, potentially rather than doing. Um, so, Peter Kraft, if you want to read his book, he also gets into a very interesting, like, what if, because sex also has a <coughs> spiritual dimension, is there some sort of, he would call it, sex, we'll call it sexual intercourse, but not in any physical sense, any spiritual sense, between men and women, in particular instances, in particular ways? Is there some sharing of spirit that is unique and special between male and female in heaven on a kind of spiritual level? Maybe. Um, that I can't, I don't have detail for that right now, so, but. So you mentioned that we would still be male and female in heaven, and then you're talking about how there's no sex in heaven. How does this tie in with natural law philosophy? where we determine something's purpose by its design, <coughs> if we still have the equipment, uh, would it not be a good, an intrinsic good, to use it as it's designed? How does that work? But you could just not use it, even here, and you're not doing a harm. You're not doing a harm, but <coughs> you're not. It's just completely it. neutral, right? And it's good, it's, it's animal design here, just isn't, a thing in heaven. There are no new children. So that good you would be using it for doesn't exist. So, but, all right. Here, I'm going to, this is a big overview of, those were just kind of fun preliminary questions almost. This is hopefully a big overview of like, what do we actually do in heaven? I'll give you, this is more a Catholic thing. If you read like Randy Alcorn with heaven, um, I'll mention a few of the other things he talks about, but we can start here. All right, a lot of people have this image of what do we do in heaven. Um, no, no more hearts, I can't take it anymore. I.e., all we do is sit around and <coughs> play music and worship God for all of eternity, and that's literally all we do. A lot of people think that'd be really, really boring. That's literally all you did. Some other people, mostly philosophers, think we will just contemplate God's <laughs> essence for all of eternity. 
That sounds really boring to most normal people as well. They've gotten to this group. They've gotten to this group. But to most normal people, doing that, God, for all of eternity, sounds really boring. <laughs> so what will we be doing, potentially? Bring Chris would say, okay, there are three different stages of heaven, as far as it goes. Okay, we, can, we will argue about this in a moment, but I'm just going to go through the three, three stages currently. All right, first stage would be purgatory, which would be understanding is the key word for purgatory, i.e., it comes first because you have to know yourself before you can really know others. If you don't know who is knowing, then it's really hard to know other people. In a full sense. The second stage would be the, what's called the communion of the saints. Its, its keyword is community, and its driving thing is it comes second because you must love the divine image in people before you can love the divine model it is based on fully. And the last one comes last is called the beatific vision, and this is exploration is the key frame, and this is perfected humanity in community exploring God, not individually necessarily, but in community. All right, and then what well, before these? I show them in order like this, but this is not a start order. You need all three of these to be able to accomplish each of them, right? To fully understand yourself, you need other people. To fully understand yourself and other people, you need to know God, right? So these are not in necessarily sequential order, but we will argue that they have to be, these stages have to be completed in this order. You have to completely know yourself first before you can completely know other people, and you have to completely know other people before you can fully, fully, fully dive into God and community. Would you call it a more vertical order then? Um, more like music, where it goes, it's all going at the same time, but you might finish a certain strain of the music before the full piece. Okay, and so, these all circle back into each other. You, as you learn about each other and learn about God, you learn more about yourself, and as you learn more about self, it helps you know more about each other and about God, and you just keep moving on. All right, here we'll get to the big one. Peter Griff, being a Protestant, at one point, asked, can Protestants believe in purgatory? And he will say, well, you can disagree with C.S. Lewis, who believes in purgatory, and if you do, then um, good luck to you. I knew that's where that was going. And he would say, um, so this is where a lot of people would potentially argue. So purgatory, what we need to, uh, there's a few things we need to go over for what the Catholics really mean by purgatory. And I'm generally convinced these are acceptable meanings, um, but we can see. The first one is it's a part of heaven not some distinct place that you go before you get to heaven. It's a part of heaven. You are actually in heaven. We call it purgatory because it's a stage of your sanctification in heaven. But it's, you're in heaven. It's not some place you go to before you get to heaven. Third one. First one. Second, 
It is a joyful place. It's not a gloomy place. Those are the fires of joy, not the fires of hell. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> so is this working off the first definition of purgatory, or is this the definition of purgatory that's like you're working off sins that uh, you're you're basically paying back for sins that you've committed in a sort of workspace theology? I'll, I'll get to that in okay. the next few points. All right. So. Purgatory is joyful, it's not gloomy. Um, so I, it doesn't distract from the joy and triumph of Christian death. There is joy in what you're going through in purgatory. It is not a horrible thing to happen, right? You are joyful about <coughs> this cleansing of yourself in purgatory, right? So you are not distracting from the fact that it is triumphant in death. All right, it is a place of sanctification, not a place of justification. Sin is removed from people in purgatory. It is not paid for. So this is you essentially contemplating all the sin you've gone through in your life from a completely objective view, kind of, I'll say completely objective viewpoint, and seeing it for what it truly is and the effect it's had and giving you a chance to truly, of your own self, repent in full knowledge of everything you have done and how it has truly affected other people, affected the world, affected yourself, things like this. This is a chance for you to grow in repentance of yourself for what sins you've committed. So it's not a place to pay for it. Jesus has already paid for it all. That's why you're in heaven in the first place. Remember, it's part of heaven. This is a place for you to grow in yourself by essentially learning how your actions in life and your sins affected yourself and everybody else. Is it a physically separate place? So is it like the Australia of heaven? <laughs> um, San Australia is not as good as everywhere else. Right. That's where they sent all the criminals. <laughs> um, people would say no. And the reason is, is because you need all three of these steps at the same time. So it can't be a separate place because you actually have to be able to commune with the saints and see God all at the same time. So, so if I'm in, in purgatory and you're more awesome than I am, I can still see you? Like, I'm not physically... We are all working for however long people take to work through. This is like a stage, not necessarily a place. Okay. So this is like more a thing that happens in heaven. Yeah. But then why do they given a special name and why does everybody call it a place? <laughs> is it just super distorted? And Yeah, I think that's for it. Okay. Um. <laughs> like, why do that? Just make it confusing for us. Okay, so then why do people want to get out of purgatory? Like, why are you supposed to pray in Catholic doc dogma for people in purgatory? Um, if it's a great place. like it's Well, I mean, because you, you eventually want to have repented of all your sin that you can possibly repent of. I kind of get that, but if it's a good place, like, it's joyful, Yes. The why, why, like, you should help people get out, you know. Because help people, people get out. If, if it's not because we want them to, like, work through their sins as fast as they possibly can, then there's, I think it's uh, misguided uh, reasoning. And it's not saying, I mean, when you get out of purgatory, even though we're not really saying it's a place, yeah. it doesn't mean that now that you're going to a place that You've gotten out of stage isn't one. joyful. You're still going to be in another place that's joyful. Yeah. Okay, but one more quick question though. Yep. If it's about sanctification, not justification, what's up with the whole 
uh, what are they called? Insurgences or whatever they are, uh, Pope Selim. Indulgences. Indulgences, thank you. And it's well, from the Treasury of the Saints works, like. Oh, sure, yes, that's the whole, like, Martin Luther. Yes. So why is it that you can basically take the Saints' good works and have them pay for you in Catholic dogma if it's not about justification, it's not paying for the work? Generally, we would, uh, I think, if you actually talk to most Catholics who know what they're talking about, they would say those are people who don't know what they're talking about. So the just, church is just wrong then. <laughs> or at least the people who are selling them are incorrect. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Would uh, then Catholics, because I've heard the Catholics say it's faith plus works equals salvation. Is that not the case? So no, this is the whole faith works thing. So I don't have a, a board. The boards are over there. Um, <laughs> but Peter Craig would say, OK, imagine everyone is a tube. You are a tube. And you have caps at both ends, right? What you're supposed to do is open both ends. You are supposed to receive love from God, and you are supposed to give it out in works. Faith, give, faith brings the love from God, right? Allows you access to the love of God in that in a salvation way, right? And you give it out to other people in works, right? It's a legalism. Another thing is when you cap the bottom, and you like so you sure you might have or like the Protestants that he would say sometimes get it wrong is you cap the bottom and. It's all I need is the insert from the top. And he said, obviously, that's not how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And legalism is the other way, where you don't receive anything from the top, but you try to make all the good stuff happen out the bottom. So he would say the whole faith plus works thing is just the natural consequence of how it, love should flow through you from God. So. Faith plus works, if, and so that's the sense of, if people would say, if you aren't doing works, then are you really receiving stuff from the top? Right, that's, that's what people more argue when they're arguing. It's like, people who understand what they mean when they say faith plus works, which I will unfortunately argue is probably not a lot of Catholics. Sorry to Catholics. <laughs> that's the heathens right Yeah, I know, right, no. Um, it, that's the distinction that is missed, is that it's not the works that save you, but if you're not doing works, are you really saved? Is I the have, big. See, that's Protestant. But that's, uh, that's, uh, that is Protestant, but Catholics who actually know what they're talking about will say, well, obviously that's what we meant. Okay. <laughs> like, it's actually not an issue at all. No. Okay. No. It's, no. It's, still, <laughs> it's still faith basically saves, but... Obviously, if faith is alive, of course that works. Yeah, and they okay. would say, because sometimes Protestants get into these weird waters where you could say someone's saved, but they're just not acting particularly Christianly at the moment. And Catholics would go, eh, are they really saved if they're not doing works? That's where the problem comes, is okay. when you have people who were at some point a Christian, and, and then yeah. they're, not any, they're not acting that way anymore, are they were they ever really Christian? Were are they still a Christian? So you're talking about like consistent long term behaviors, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Not yes. Not, not like oh I lied to you at some point today. Everyone does that. That's why repentance is a thing. That's why this place is a thing. <laughs> this stage is a thing. So with this question when they pray for them to get out of purgatory, and even if they're praying just so you can repent of your sins faster, yep. they how would that be beneficial? Because, like, aren't you having to, it's like your own self that you've got to deal with? Like, how is somebody praying for you? Is God going to help well, you I more because you if someone's, had prayer? Even in this life, right, if 
someone is dealing with some, uh, say, some particular sin, and it keeps coming up in their lives, we pray for them to be able to overcome it and to repent of it right. and to come to knowledge faster. Right? But if you're so living and you're praying that? for people who are no, who like are in heaven, right? Because yeah. it's a living that's praying for them. Like sure. you don't even know if they're still dealing with that. You not, you're not even. You don't know for unless you. I mean, have a maybe they, they, they might not they even are, be right? in purgatory, and you're praying about it. So it's yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard, right? It's but then again, you have the same thing of if you just pray for people that you don't know, which I'm not sure is particularly effective. <laughs> or if you don't know something about them, it might be pretty weird yeah. because you don't have knowledge, true. right? And that makes the prayer potentially kind of odd, right? And you don't right. have knowledge of their state. So. All right. Once again, this is spiritual education, not spiritual deeds. This is not a second chance to, uh, to redo what you did. This is to learn about all of what you did and to repent of it. Okay. Once again, purgatory is not a do-over. <laughs> okay. But purgatory, people will say, is painful joyously, but it really sucks to go through in exquisite detail all of the horrible failures of your life. Like the Eustace Dragon thing? Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. Other things about purgatory. Here we go. <laughs> it is. It also is completion, right? It is not to do. Its purpose is not to do all the things we should have, but to help us become the people we should have. There's a difference. By repenting and learning of all of your mistakes, you are you help yourself become become the person you should have been, even if you can't do all of the deeds you should have done. So essentially it's God redeeming you, essentially. Yes, it's an outworking of your sanctification. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Once again, light, so you see and understand all your past choices. Um, in this instance, unlike this life, knowledge does actually cure you of all of your ills. <laughs> unlike this life, you can know something and still do really bad things uh, in that life. Well, Socrates had a thing of he's like, the problem with the world is people just don't know. If they just knew they didn't know or knew they were immoral, essentially moral education is the way to go. Here, that doesn't really work so odd. There, knowledge is what moves you. You see perfectly and that knowledge moves you or it affects you perfectly. So by having this, you truly see sin for what it is. You cannot be deceived by it. And so it truly will cure you of your ills because you will never want to do it because you will truly see it for what it does. Okay. It is the reading of your life. Um, once again, you get total understanding of acceptance. Um, people would say, he would say, potentially it's like, have, if anyone's seen the play Our Town? Oh, my brother just hates that. Right? That's fair. But if anyone's seen it, right, she is essentially re reviewing her life afterward. So you have a, I lived it, and I get to objectively view it. So you're both inside and outside of it. 
both from within it and from without it. And that helps with the total understanding and acceptance, right? Because you have lived it, but then you detach from it and in full knowledge review it, right? So you get both, both sides more total. Once again, it's detachment. Detachment is hard, active work. It is very difficult to be detached from things. If you ever have someone in your life who has an addiction or a problem or various other ills like that, you will learn how difficult it is to love them in detachment because if you don't detach and still love them, you will get yourself dragged into a whole lot of messes. Just a thing. So detachment is what this helps you. It helps teach you detachment from your sins in your life. He would say, Krafe would also say, you have to learn detachment at some point. You have to give up your life. You have to die before you die to get into heaven at all. If you don't detach from your life now, never going to happen. <laughs> so you have to learn detachment at some point if you want to make it into heaven. All right, two last things. Purgatory helps redeem wasted lives. All lives are wasted in some way. We'll just throw that out there right now. None of us has lived a perfectly good life except for Jesus. All right. <laughs> this allows for appreciation and correction, right? If you wronged someone, maybe you could go find that person and apologize and stuff like that, right? Who knows? All right. Make it to heaven. What happens to sin? We can see the meaning and effect of all of our sins on ourselves and others. We might experience all the harm we've done to others. with a mature conscience and with the compassion and forgiveness of God. So it won't break you, that knowledge, because you understand fully that you are forgiven, but it will be painful to go all through all of that. And this is necessary, he would say, because after we remember sin, we can forget it. After we take it seriously, we can laugh at it. So, for the joy on the other side, you, go, you push through the pain here. All right, the joy of purgatory, once again, comes from seeing. Suffering is the same way. So we get to see the beginnings of the fulfillment of the promise to work all things together for good. So you get to see how even all the failures in your life are working together to form you toward who God wants you to be and for your ultimate good, which is really cool. <laughs> all right, second stage is communion of saints. All right, a few things. Heaven is communal. People who hate communal things, I'm sorry. Heaven is, <laughs> heaven is with other people. <laughs> and so he would say, okay, love, which he would say unifies by individuating and individuates by unifying. So in community, you both are more yourself and more a part of other people. He, once again, is the principle of he who loses himself will find it, the whole model of the Trinity. God loses himself to himself in a perfect community. Right? And we get to learn that we are each responsible for all. We learn that we are each responsible for each other in all these various different ways. Hence why God says, like, God says he will visit judgment on to people who disobey him until the third or fourth generation. Generally, a lot of people read that to mean, like, your sin will affect potentially up to four generations from you. So we are all responsible for all. That's a thing we've lost, I think, in modern times, is the communal responsibility for sin. 
Another one? Heavenly empathy. This is a very interesting one. Maybe we will have the lived experience of all the other individuals in heaven at some point as we work through this stage. Maybe we will relive everyone's lives essentially alongside them. So not like from without as a detached observer, but along with their soul as we go through their life. You would very intimately know every single person because you have lived their lives with them. For every person. You have infinite time in heaven. So there's no worry about, there's a finite amount of people in heaven, there is infinite amount of time so that you can get through everybody. Are you saying you time travel? Maybe. But not necessarily. For all you could, you could be, it could be through essentially like a perfect memory, right? Because you're going to have a perfect memory going through purgatory. I'm sure I want a perfect memory. So what about when it mentions like the, the thousand year reign and different things like that? I um, might be disconnected from this right so now. So we would say heaven is not quite there yet. Okay. So this is like, we're going to say after Christ comes back. You could potentially say some of these things. Some of the, you would say, a lot of people would say, these things start as soon as you die, right? Like you start going through purgatory, you start commuting with the rest of the saints that are already dead, slash are also alive. We would say the church triumphant and the church militant still actually care and pray for each other, right? There's still one church, one body. Just one has died and one has not yet. Okay, so I think the experience alongside souls would be fascinating. And is one way to get empathy. How how do you best understand someone except if you how much would you understand someone if you lived their life with them? Like literally. All right, earthly problem solved. So this is the problem of unjust distribution in this life. Not unjust, um, maybe not unjust, but like not equality, but unjust distribution. So if everyone ex in this heavenly empathy, if everyone experiences everyone else's life, well, even if your life was somewhere that wasn't maybe particularly super great, you get to experience everyone else's life who you felt was unjustly distributed. So everyone, and the people who had the life who they felt was great, well, they lived the life of the person who potentially lived somewhere that wasn't so great. Right? So you all learn and live the lives of each other. So that helps solve the problem of, say, unjust distribution, because you all experience all of each other. Would you say... Like if a baby died or whatever and is in heaven, would you say the same thing there? I mean, they live, they get to live sure, through and, other and, people and, or? Sure, they would say that potentially, Peter Christ said, maybe the parents get to educate them, get to show them through life. What happens if a baby dies and the parents don't die for another 50 years? Is the baby not 50 years old? By well, time is a little weird, so <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought unborn children, possibly those that didn't reach the age of reason, went to limbo in Catholic dogma. Debatable. 
Okay. And if they go to limbo, then you've just solved Jess's problem because then they, they don't age until they get to heaven and then you're good. The Catholics have backed off of limbo quite a bit. <laughs> I, and I, I will share. Sure. I'm Catholic, obviously, and very much purgatory was more um, fire and brimstone-y as I was taught. Sure. Um, but limbo is a place that we were taught about that if you were not baptized, that is where your right. soul went. My mother lost, had stillborn twins. For years, I had this vision of these babies, just like in the abyss. In my mind, God would not, that could not happen because he's a merciful God and isn't going to do that. So I think that the Catholics have backed off a limbo a little bit from why I, I haven't heard limbo mentioned in probably 45 years. I know that they still talk about it, but like in a Catholic church, I've not heard it mentioned in years and years and years. Well, from what I understood, Limbo, it was like a pretty good earth. Like it wasn't like great heaven, but it wasn't hell. It wasn't like abyss. No, it was an abyss. It's the way I always envisioned it. But that's just my interpretation of okay. how it was taught to me. Which, I mean, I, I had a bunch of old Catholic nuns teaching me this stuff, and okay. some of them were a bit... You know, right. so honestly, that was my vision of it. Just an abyss and nothingness and these poor little babies just floating around <laughs> with no, nothing no around them and no guidance and no warmth. I mean, it was, in my mind, a horrible it place. Like it's kind of like the moon. <laughs> I don't know if that's Never what truly the definition was that that I I other babies floating around so, in the so, giant <laughs> never ending world. The way that I hear about it is it's just like a, a non existence. What you described it of basically them waiting until their parents and then they go to heaven at some point. That sounds like it's just spiritual cryo sleep. Is that that would be pretty cool, but that would be pretty cool, and I have no idea. Just the answer. <laughs> we need Doug here. All right, and then this is probably the coolest, I find this is one of the coolest ones. All right, what do we do about language in heaven? Well, you could have a bunch of different languages, or Peter Gray thought, okay, maybe we will all have essentially the one, if, anyone's read Aragon, essentially like the one true language, right? Oh. Like the ancient language, where essentially the words for things names them in a way our words don't. It's it's like the thing is embodied in its name, right? There is something necessary about the connection of this name with this thing. And that would be utterly fascinating and pretty awesome. <laughs> so that might be a thing where you because then you truly mean there is no ambiguity right in a way because each thing embodies what it means what it talks about yeah. what happens to grammar in that case yeah that's a great question I'm sure the ancient don't get too excited too. Liam <laughs> <laughs> they went over it Preston <laughs> trying to understand Catholic doctrine here yep. um Is this just like yeah. guesswork, or are they taking this from parts of the Bible? Or specifically the language and the memory part, or are those more just doctrine that have been woven in that maybe not necessarily have a biblical... Those are... Because uh, I can see purgatory and parts of that, the way you're explaining oh, it, sure. biblically. 
we're not told necessarily much what the saints do with each other except for eat and praise God okay. in the Bible. If you read the Bible, that's pretty much all you get. And if that's as far as you want to go, that's good. These are um, thoughts. Essentially, it's like, yes, of course we will commune with each other because it, we're a community. So, yes, we will commune with each other. How do you solve or how do you... What is the end goal of community? It's to truly understand one another. How would you best truly understand another person if you accept it? But you could potentially live their life with them, right? These are outworkings of what is the purposes of community in, in general, right? Okay. All right. And then I will wrap it up because I'm almost done. This is literally the last slide, actually. So this is actually the what people would say the main Thing in heaven that you do, right? This is the beatific vision. It's really hard to find descriptions of what is the beatific vision. Um, the best, I took this quote from Peter Craig, there are a few others that I might be able to find, but it's this. Rather, in joy and wisdom, the living God lets himself be touched by the human heart, center to center, heart to heart, spirit to spirit, I to thou, deep calling into deep. So people have described it as the beatific vision is an almost unimaginably direct knowledge of God. You know him in a... Here we know him mediately. He, he is mediated through something all the time. There is no direct, direct experience of God here. Moses gets pretty close, right? But he only sees the back of God. He doesn't see the face of God. And so it's still mediated, right? But there is in some way an immediate spiritual communion with God when you see him. Somehow you can directly see God. What does that mean? I don't really know. No one really can. You can't really explain that very well, except beyond kind of how I'm describing it. What this does mean is you, right? God being the source of all of the goodness, all goodness, he is goodness, all joy, all love, all everything, right? You get to somehow have immediate knowledge of that. Of goodness itself. Of joy itself of love itself. And that's a mystery beyond that we know we will see God face to face and we will be in a way like him. We will have his joy. We will be in his joy. We will be in his love. We will be in his goodness. And so this is actually, this is the reason all the rest of it's awesome. It's because of God and because of this. Right? So this is the final stage that never ends the other stages no long I mean the other stages are finite because we're finite and there's only eventually you have infinite time so eventually you work through them but you can never exhaust God so the beautific vision will never end I don't see where the second stage would happen it may not end either but if it does it might but this would be the only stage that cannot Yes, you, because you could always learn more from each saint as they learn more from God, and you just kind of keep circling back around, right? Yeah. Will we ever reach perfection? That is a question, right? Uh, 
we can wrap it up and then we can talk about any random questions that we haven't already covered. So, go. Good. Somebody want to press up? Yep, I can. I'll do it. All right, thank you for today. Thank you for the nice weather we've been having after the snowstorm. It's nice to get um, everything melting and um, hopefully safe back down, less icy. Um, Lord, thank you for the hope that you gave us. Um, I know I started with that, and um, it is the how. How 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 do we? get and acquire this this perfection that our heart desires this goodness that you are how do we reach you and heaven is your answer to that um, the dying of self that self may live and Lord we pray that this hope and this reminder will be with us that we will recognize that we have started to have taste of that hope now, taste of your presence in this life as we are born in Christ, and we pray that we will only continue to get closer and closer to you until at last the veil is lifted and we 